Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back. And special thanks to Governor Patrick for coming here this afternoon and sharing so much time and his thinking with us. We are very appreciative. And so we are here now to continue the conversation with a distinguished panel that represents a diversity of points of view in terms of the current state and future of health reform in Massachusetts. And we're going to open it up and share this conversation with you in the audience. We hope so many of the folks who've been watching on the web from around the world are with us. I'm sure hoping that Melissa from Liverpool is still with us as well. And if she is, I hope she can send us another question. So we are going to start with some back and forth and conversation among the panelists before we open it up. And I'd like to frame it by building on what the governor talked about and talk about Massachusetts health reform in three parts. So health reform 1.0 is about access to health insurance, which was the overriding purpose of the 2006 health reform law that was passed five years ago. And health reform 2.0 is about costs and quality, about the conversation that the governor focused so much on today, and which is what we're in the middle of trying to figure out right now. And Health Reform 3.0, if some people have their way, is going to be about health promotion, disease prevention, and creating a healthier public, which ultimately is the fundamental purpose for why we're here. And so with our distinguished panel today, we want to talk about and focus on Health Reform 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. And to start us, with Health Reform 1.0, we have to my immediate left Reverend Herman Hamilton, who is the pastor of the Roxbury Presbyterian Church. He is the president of the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, and I think people would unanimously agree as one of the essential leaders who was involved in the creation, passage, and successful implementation of Massachusetts health reform. So we're going to ask him to focus on 1.0, but we know he can't restrain himself from talking about 2.0 and 3.0, and that's why he's here, because we love him so much. Next is Nancy Kane, who is a professor of management and associate dean for educational programs here at the Harvard School of Public Health. She recently completed six years of service on the board of something called MedPAC which is also known as the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is the principal body in the United States and the federal government that advises Congress on anything and everything related to Medicare. And so she brings a very special perspective in terms of these conversations at the national level. And she was also a member of the panel that recommended the framework for payment reform here in Massachusetts a couple of years ago. And then finally, and certainly not least of all, uh, to talk about Health Reform 3.0, we have the Commissioner of Public Health for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, uh, John Auerbach. He is also the former director 
of the Boston Public Health Commission. He is also the current national president of an organization called ASTO, which is the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers, which is the national organization for commissioners of public health from all 50 states. And so we're very, first of all, honored and privileged that John is serving in that role, and we're even more honored and privileged to have us here today. So that's the order we're going to go in. And I'm going to start with Reverend Hamilton. And you know, these conversations can get so policy-driven and wonky so easily and quickly. So I'm wondering, I want to ask you to do two things. One is, can you share a story of someone you know who has been personally helped by Massachusetts health reform? And then following on that, can you reflect on five years of Massachusetts health reform, particularly in light of one year of national health reform, which has been so strikingly different as it has unfolded? Sure. Uh, let me just say a word. Uh, uh, there's a memory that comes to mind uh, early on in the fight to win health reform. <coughs> GBIO's group I'm the president of uh, had the task of organizing about 500 clergy uh, across race and class, uh, uh, representing Christians and Jewish and Muslims. They were progressive, evangelical, and conservative uh, and liberal. I, and I raise this point because at the time that that happened, uh, the state of Massachusetts was in the, the center of the major fight around same-sex marriage. And the clergy community was fractured in, in an enormous way. And yet, we got 500 from all these different perspectives that I've just mentioned to come together, to stand behind a theological document that said that healthcare was, in fact, a right and not a privilege and went so far as to say that in our own institutional life that we were going to work to make sure that uh, health care was delivered in a very just way. In the midst of the, the horrendous debate that uh, I hear now, people polarize, I think of that story. Because that story gives me hope of what actually can, can happen. Now, as it relates to a person, I, I want to talk, uh, I generally, share a story of Laverne Barnes, who's a deacon in my church, who actually uh, had been without health insurance for 15 years before health care reform happened in Massachusetts, literally saved her life. But I want to share another story of actually my god sister, Tammy Stafford, who came here to go to seminary. And she was here right after Chapter 58 was passed, and she was the first uh, beneficiary of that. Uh, three generations in her family has suffered from breast cancer, all of which had died including her mother, her aunt, et cetera. She was diagnosed here with breast cancer, had a major uh, uh, surgery uh, to resolve it, uh, solely because of health reform was she able to do that. Then she got all of her follow-up and all of that. She was well taken care of. Then she went back to our home state in Louisiana, uh, where she has been for the last two years. As you know, Louisiana does not have any uh, health care reform like we do. And she has been without health care for two years. She has not been able to get her follow-up treatment. She has not been able to get her care, et cetera, et cetera. So I lift that story just to show, one, how 
what we have done in Massachusetts have saved many lives, including that of my god sister. Two, why it is absolutely necessary to happen nationally. Here's my last point. I get absolutely outraged when I hear the term Obamacare. Because at the end of the day, President Obama has the best health care coverage in the world. We pay for it. Uh, when I hear Romney care, uh, he has expensive private care. At the end of the day, health care reform nationally and locally is Tammy Stafford care. It's Laverne Bond's care. It's Jack Johnson's care. It's the care of Republicans and Democrats across this nation who's a part of the 40 million folk who don't have health care. That's, that's the care that we are working hard at, and that's what we have in Massachusetts. That's what I think. Great. Thank you. So, Nancy Kane, you heard the governor speak about payment reform and put it in terms I think that are fairly compelling and understandable. You've also been in the room with so many of the health industry representatives when the governor's not there and you hear what they say when he's not there. Can you reflect on the challenge of the governor to us all and the complexity of this as you've seen it in the state and nationally? And how do you think this is going to go? Sure. Um, look, I'm, I've, I've heard the warning not to get wonky, so I'm going to try to keep this very simple. <laughs> this, this, uh, this bill, by the way, if you have a chance, it is, I believe, available online, and it's very hard to follow. And I think that in itself is part of the challenge. Um, but buried in there are some really terrific strengths that I think will be implementable. The, certainly going towards an all-payer system, everybody wants that. It's, it's really very hard. I think even the plans acknowledge that uh, efforts to one by one try to rein in healthcare costs just doesn't work. That, and that's what, even though the word market apparently is not a good one, uh, the, the market did not work to have one by one plans trying to go in and negotiate one by one with provider systems. So the, uh, the, the all-payer direction of the legislation, I think, is a real strength and I think has political legs. I think the global payment direction also has political legs that have been um, enhanced by uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act. I think the federal government, Medicare, and having sat six years on, on Medicare's uh, advisory commission, you know, we've been saying the whole time I've been on there, fee-for-service doesn't work. We need to get towards more uh, coordinated payment, more you know, payment that recognizes the patient as a, a, a whole person with uh, uh, multiple providers across an episode of illness rather than as uh, you know, a, a person getting a service at a moment in time. So the payment system has to move along in that direction. I think the places where we still have incredible, shall we say, diversity of opinion, if not act, you know, potentially uh, um, potential differences that may be very hard to overcome lay around the role of government and the, and the role of the patient. And um, one, the role of government, how forceful should the government be in, in trying to uh, encourage cost containment? Right now we have this kind of convoluted suggestion where the, I mean, I hope it works, the division of insurance is going to push down on premiums and somehow that, that pressure is going to somehow trickle down or translate into pressure on the providers. And, that always worries me um, that it won't trickle down quite the way we all hope it will. Um, I think it will take an enormous amount of government standard setting, rule setting, guidelines, 
rules, you know, setting the playing field level to make that income remotely possible. So I think that the role of government there is, is not, you know, it's not clearly set out because there's people don't like, I was told when I was on the special commission that regulation is bad, we can't use that word. So we have these other kind of funny words in there. And the other part about the role of government is if you look at the administrative complexity of who's doing what. Now when we were on the, on the commission, we said get an oversight committee and have it use existing state agencies, but put a head on it that's independent, that's content experts, that's people who know what they're doing, but they're not conflicted. And instead, the proposal diffuses the administrative responsibilities and authority across three or four or five, I couldn't even keep track how many agencies. And then at the top of it looks like a bunch of government officials trying to sort it all out with an advisory group. And I just think that's not a powerful enough or cohesive enough administrative structure. So again, the role of government, big problem. And the second one is the role of the patient. Um, I think right now, we're pretty schizophrenic. Uh, we're pretty unclear as a society on what role we want the patient uh, to play, whether they should be responsible for their acts and take responsibility for um, their choices or you know, stop smoking, lose weight, do you know, or whether um, they should be allowed to choose and have a minimal amount of responsibility for those choices. And I think it crystallizes in, in the current proposed legislation around um, the medical home idea. So right now, the patient picks a primary care doctor or some type of primary care team. It's not clear at that point how restricted that patient becomes when they need more care. Do they have to follow the physician's recommendations? Do they have to connect to an ACO, an accountable care organization? Or are they free to do whatever they want and leave the provider community struggling to chase after that patient and, and let them have their choices? And I think we don't know as a society yet how to, how to deal with that conflict. But I think the providers will say, I can't do this if we can't create some tools for making the patient, uh, A, be responsible for what they can be responsible for, compliance and all that. And B, um, you know, make choices that, you know, in, in, as a part of a team with their provider rather than totally free to make whatever choices they want and the provider just has to um, keep up with them. So that's probably enough, but mm -hmm. those are the two areas I think that the, the bill needs strengthening. But you know, as, as Governor uh, Patrick said, uh, we aren't going to have the perfect and it definitely is a good bill in the right direction. So let me pull it back for a minute then to, to Reverend Hamilton. I know I pigeonholed you earlier into Health Reform 1.0, but I also know your coalition, the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, is now getting ready to be deeply engaged in Health Reform 2.0. And I'm wondering if you can talk about payment reform from the perspective of ordinary citizens and regular patients and consumers and whatever label you want to put on. How are you struggling with this and how are you facing up to the dilemma that Nancy referred to? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, uh, historically, uh, consumers, patients uh, have felt locked out of the cost control debate. It's just, as uh, everybody said, so complicated. How do you organize inside of that? Uh, but we put together a team of about 25 leaders inside of the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, which reflects the broad breadth of diversity of the organization. And for the last four to five months, we have been sitting with uh, stakeholders uh, from all areas uh, to get a sense of their policy positions uh, and where they were coming uh, down at around cost controls, including 
uh, Mr. Dreyfus uh, from Blue Cross Blue Shield, Mr. Gottlieb from Partners, uh, Attorney General's office was represented, the governor, the secretary, uh, Big B, wide range, folk here from Boston, et cetera, from uh, Harvard, et cetera. Uh, and so after that work, we have uh, basically come out with a two-part strategy uh, to date. We're still refining it. The first is that come June 31st, after a range of robust conversations with folk in our congregations, academic experts, et cetera, we're going to propose uh, targets, benchmarks for premiums, limits, over which they should not exceed uh, for to be implemented uh, in January 2012. We're going to seek to get the major stakeholders to voluntarily agree to those premium targets. Uh, that's our short-term target. Uh, and then long-term, uh, starting July 1 till January next year, we'll be working very hard on fashioning uh, what is the legislative uh, caveat enforcement, not too hard, not too light. What's the Goldilocks formula, if you will, uh, to try to make sure that uh, what we get agreed upon uh, happens. So we're looking very hopefully uh, at that. The last thing I would say is that we also are looking at a role in terms of consumers. John, you're going to talk about this later. But we think that we have a, a serious role around educating consumers about their choices. You can go to a local community hospital and get the same treatment for less cost. We think we have a responsibility in educating consumers around inner life care issues. Certainly clergy, we, we see a lot of this. Uh, and we think we have a responsibility of raising the challenge around broader public health as it relates to Mattapan, Dorchester, Roxbury, Lynn, Springfield, where you can't find decent grocery stores. So there's no fresh vegetables, fresh meat, I mean fresh vegetables, fresh fruit. Uh, and so people take the cheap way out. Uh, no safe parks for the kids to play in. So that's the range of way that consumers uh, as organized as we're uh, imagining can get engaged. Thank you. So now, turning it to our fantastic Commissioner of Public Health, John Arbach, and a, a two-part question. First is, so after, after five years of Massachusetts health reform, do we have any solid evidence that it's actually led to measurable, demonstrable improvements in the population's health in Massachusetts? I know there are many folks who are starting to ask that question. And then the second question is, as we think about Health Reform 3.0 and health promotion, disease prevention, what Reverend Hamilton was talking about, is it real? What might it look like? And what would it take to do it effectively in Massachusetts? I'm really glad you're asking the first question because often what happens with um, healthcare reform is that the the uh, criteria for evaluating success are based upon looking at the number of people who are insured or looking at utilization or looking at premium costs. But many of us think that fundamentally healthcare reform should be about improving health. And if it's about improving health, then we should be looking for the indicators that improved access to uh, healthcare services results in better health and it, it clearly does for people who have been uh, diagnosed with an illness and need to have a clear course of, of care. But we were interested in the broader picture about whether or not there were um, measurable indicators of improved health and sometimes hard to find, sometimes those indicators take a few years to, to actually see. We, we did 
um, find what we think are um, real surrogate markers of improved health, and I'll, I'll mention just a, a handful of those. Uh, we saw in the first year after health care reform was implemented in Massachusetts a statistically significant increase in the uh, number and percentage of adults with flu vaccine. And, and we were able to measure that the location where the growth occurred was doctor's offices. Makes sense. If you used to go to the emergency room for care when you needed it, suddenly you're in a primary care setting, you'll get a flu shot. Similarly, we saw um, a statistically significant big jump in the number of adults uh, that were age appropriate uh, who received colonoscopies. And again, made sense. If you're uninsured and you're not going to the doctor unless you are ill, you're less likely to be referred to something like a, a colonoscopy. Colonoscopies are, are not only screening, but they can be preventive by catching cancer before, uh, catching early uh, signs of uh, problems and, and dealing with them before they get to be cancerous. We, we saw also a, um, a dramatic drop in the adults who smoked in the first year. And we were able to tie that to a component of healthcare reform that included coverage for nicotine replacement therapy um, for people on Medicaid, uh, the largest drop we'd seen in many, many years. Um, one other point, though, that I'll, I'll mention as a surrogate marker is we've surveyed people and we asked them, um, in the last year, have you gone to a doctor for preventive care? And preventive care is, is meant to include those services we know that if you get it, you're less likely to get sick, and so it, it works. And th that's the screening for mammography screening, colonoscopies, it's uh, blood pressure screenings, it's vaccinations. There what we've seen is very interesting. For the 98% of the population that have health insurance, 75% say they've had a preventive healthcare visit in the last year. For the 2% of the population that don't have health insurance, 35% say they've had a preventive health visit. So that's a very different ratio of, of, uh, of who's getting care. And we know that the 2% are more in need of healthcare services. So I think that there is uh, uh, increasing evidence that healthcare reform has resulted in people uh, being likely to be healthier. But by the way, I will mention that a partner in terms of our looking at this question is the Harvard Catalyst Program, and we're very grateful that we're working in partnership um, with Harvard on that. But your second question, though, is maybe the, the more important question, and that is, um, is there a way that we can think about um, a component of, of, of working on healthcare reform and healthcare that really is about keeping people well so they don't come in and they need uh, expensive care. And, and to do that, uh, there's, there's a part of that that takes place in a clinical setting, but a lot of it is about changing the conditions of people's lives and recognizing the connection between what happens in their lives, what, what the Reverend was mentioning earlier, um, in terms of access to healthy foods, um, in terms of um, easy places to exercise, uh, in terms of um, um, housing that's healthy, transportation systems that encourage pedestrian use and biking. Uh, that takes a different focus. Our, our own view is the absolute best way of reducing healthcare costs is keeping people from getting sick. And we know what works. We know, for instance, uh, with diabetics that uh, it, you can prevent diabetes if people work on 
uh, uh, controlling their weight. Um, uh, we know that we can prevent asthma attacks if we work on the environment in which people with asthma live, and so that the, that's less likely to cause a trigger. So we need to begin to think outside of the clinical setting about what we can do in terms of policy, uh, and then link that to what's going on in the clinical setting in a meaningful way. So yes, I, I think 3.0 is, is where we should be headed in the long run. It's in the best interest of not only people, because everyone wants to stay healthy, not just get good care when they're sick, but also the, controlling the cost. Mm -hmm. And this is a question for all three of you, maybe particularly Nancy. Is there any feasible way to link Health Reform 3.0 with Health Reform 2.0, or is it, is it too different at this point? Well, uh, in the, a lot of Health Reform 2.0 is financial. And so that kind of leads you to, well, are there financial incentives or ways to encourage uh, health prevention types of activities? And, and I agree, a lot of health prevention is in the environment around the, pay the person. So you can't just change behavior of any one individual. You need to take a community approach. And I, I, there can be community block grant, community um, grants to improve health. I think that's more by foundations and private sector. I know RWJ has a huge program going on now about getting communities to try to raise the health conditions. Um, those kinds of things um, are being, you know, are very popular now. But actually, um, uh, Kate Baker and I have our favorite uh, dream, which is that, uh, now we, having looked at Medicare, Medicare is the end result of poor health care. You know, Medicare gets people when they turn 65, and between 65 and when they die is when they incur most of their lifetime costs healthcare costs and what would be great is a program that basically said to every private insurer if you deliver a healthy person to Medicare we're going to pay you X amount of money you know something and then and then you try to pass that along through different as, as a patient as a person move through their lives every time they switch plans their condition their health condition would generate some type of payment back to the health plan this is the financial solution, but I think there's, you know, can I suggest kind of yeah, try, to, yeah. try to capture these benefits so that Medicare doesn't end up with these huge end of you know, last 20 years of life uh, costs without anybody else paying. So that right now the private sector's incentive is just keep them from getting sick till they get to the Medicare program and then you're done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so one thought, I don't know if you would, you would agree with this about a way to, to link it to 2.0, um, would be to stretch the vision of what an accountable care organization actually does um, so that accountable care organizations think about um, uh, including on their team, for example, community health workers or uh, require uh, or creating incentives that uh, accountable care organizations have to link up with community-based efforts, say, around farmers markets or changing the zoning. The way to do that, I think, would be um, through ensuring that the outcome measures that are an uh, important component of the way that the accountable care organizations are evaluated and, and reimbursed, in, don't only include clinical measures, but include community health measures as well, or uh, activities that might push beyond the comfort level of the current way that we provide clinical care. Would that work? And, and I think, um, exactly, I think the metrics could certainly reflect community health metrics. Also, the fact that you're changing to a global payment, particularly, I hate to say the word, but capitation, I know that's a negative, bad word, but if a responsible organization that's being held accountable for the health of a population rather than any one sick person would, would naturally 
gravitate toward those types of solutions to keep, to keep their own financial health. So uh, there are both financial and non-financial ways to, to get there, and I think they're very viable, and I think people should be mm -hmm. looking into that. Okay, so I, so I hope we've covered enough ground that we've provoked somebody about something. So we're now going to turn to the audience, and in the back is question number one. We want everybody to identify yourself if you can. Hi, I, I'm Brian Rossman with Healthcare for All, and I just want to follow up on the question about linking 2.0 and 3.0 reform. There's a concrete proposal on the table to basically uh, take a little bit of, uh, of uh, sharing of funds from all the ACOs, the new accountable care organizations, and pool that money and then use that money to go back out to local communities to pay for non-clinical preventive health programs. And the same way we assess all the insurers, collect, put all that money in a pot to pay for vaccines, we could use that same mechanism to pay for community-based prevention activities that, it, that are in every ACO's interest, like you said, Nancy. Uh, they all put into the pot, and then their communities uh, get these preventive services, these programs to encourage better nutrition, better exercise, and so on. I think that's a very viable idea, and I'd be curious what the panel thinks about it. I, I like anything, any proposal that attempts to think about how we can achieve 3.0, so, so I do. I do uh, like that that idea, and I, I'll, I'll, re I'll relay to you what I heard from uh, the closest thing to accountable care organization that's operating currently is when I asked them, "Would you be interested in doing this kind of work, community linkage work?" They said, "Absolutely, absolutely. We think this would really make a difference." When I said, "Would you do it?" They said, "No, because if we're the only ones that are doing it." and we only have, say, 20% of the market share in our community, why should we have to pay for 100% of improving the, uh, the community's health? But if everybody had to contribute in some way, well, then that would be fair, and then we would think that that would be a way of going about it. So, so, so I think we need to think creatively about, about how, how to create the resources to begin to tackle this, and I think that's a, a very, uh, very reasonable approach. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Hang on a second. Uh, my name is Aliyah Group, and I am actually the co-chair of the team that Rev Hamilton had referenced before of consumers working on healthcare cost control. We went, we led, and developed you know 1.0. We're leading 2.0. So this is really a question to you, Mr. Auerbach. If you could help direct our team of organized consumers in linking to 3.0, what would be your priorities for us? How would you help direct us link now two to three? Um, I, I think it, let's see, I guess I would say uh, one important way to do that is, is what you're already doing, which is to make sure that at the table, as the specifics of the system are developed, there aren't simply uh, insurers and providers, but there also are uh, voices of people who are concerned with the, the broader issues around community health. I think that, that that voice has to be at the table and pushing back, no, it, it, this has to, you know, it, we have to include this, we have to figure it out. So, so fighting and clawing to get to the table, good idea. Um, uh, the, the second thing I think I would say is be as concrete as possible because I think that the, the development of 2.0 is the devil's in the details and unless we have very specific concrete um, suggestions, that fit into the framework that's evolving, 
Um, it will be hard. People will be sympathetic. I think they'll say this is a good idea, and of course we want prevention. But I think um, the the response may be uh, it's just too difficult to do, and so uh, we'll have to think about it through some other mechanism like writing grants to foundations. So. I mean, there is another uh, tool, another lever to get um, the healthcare system to think more about the community and the community's health, and I think that's in the old and in the tax exemption. So, uh, and that's actually been used in the past as ways to kind of lever, we call it community benefits. You know, what are you doing for your tax exemption? And historically we said, well, provide free care or provide care to the uninsured. Mm. But hopefully as, more, as mm. people are insured, we can say, well, you know, if you want to keep your tax exemption, you have to be part of a community coalition. You have to show that you've worked with your community to try to work on real health problems. And some organizations already do that as part of their community benefit obligation, but it's not uniform, it's not well recognized. So I think as we revamp, you know, what does tax exemption mean and why, are, why is anybody tax exempt if everybody's insured, we could try to redefine that to say, you know, you have to engage in your community, show real health outcome changes um, in, a, in a broader sense than, than traditional care. Hi, my name's Anshu. Thank you so much for speaking with us. So one question I have has to do with primary care. Um, I'm a medical student and doing my MPH this year, and I've found that not many of my classmates will be going into primary care. And we're talking a lot about incentive payments um, as far as global payments, accountable care organizations, but a lot of people don't feel like there's much incentive for physicians to be doing primary care. And so I wanted to know um, what you think we need in the physician community uh, to encourage more uh, create more incentives for people to enjoy being in the primary care organizations and in community health organizations. Do you see that as part of this 2.0 to 3.0? Nancy, did that come up? Yes, it did. The primary care workforce. I mean, I th and I think that the medical home is a little bit of a way to think about that. Where um, I mean, what physicians really hate, primary care physicians, from what I understand, is feeling like you've got to see a patient every 15 minutes, or you're not going to be able to meet payroll or pay your rent because the fees are so low. And then you've got to have someone call in, you know, come in to see you rather than call in or talk to you by email. And I think that's why the whole idea that you might want to get a, um, you know, a population you're responsible for, and then use your judgment as to how best to take care for that population, substituting in nurse practitioners or um, you know, other people who can provide care for the patient that doesn't need your skill set. Um, work with a team. Develop, um, you know, ways to, to communicate with people that don't involve having to see a person every 15 minutes. So I think there are ways to make the job of primary care physicians much more effective, much happier, and much better. Um, we do have to get away from the fee-for-service treadmill, and I think that was talked about, as well as developing the primary care workforce. That goes way back to what you know you learn in medical school and what your faculty are telling you to do and not do, and what you know. There's a whole lot of other issues around primary care besides the payment issues. But but I think there's a, a lot of hope in the, the, the going. Actually, in the mid '90s was the record number of people going into primary care. It was just that it wasn't that yeah. long ago. That's when managed care was coming along, and it looked like the primary care doctor would be the one who kind of managed the care. That fell apart. Now I think we're trying to revisit it in a more sophisticated way. Uh, Paul Hannes from the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, also faculty at Tufts Medical School. I'm going to ask Nancy a, a 2.0 question, which sort of builds on, on, on the last question. Uh, I sort of say to my students at Tufts, 
If you want to know that healthcare cost containment reform is really happening, it's because you might be witnessing a civil war going on uh, between the primary care, cognitive docs, and the people that, are, that make a, a significant amount of money from fee-for-service procedures. Um, am I right about that? And, 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 and if I'm right or wrong about their open civil war, am I right in saying that if you look at the proportion, if you look at the physician pie, of professional income pie that primary care gets now, and you look at it five years from now, if there's real health care reform, it's going to be a much bigger proportion because there is no, it's not a, uh, there's no free lunch here. So your, your, your thoughts about that in terms of redistribution of the physician income really away from the procedure-oriented people. You know, we, um, well, I'll, I'll try to respond. We, um, you know, years ago we had uh, our, our esteemed professor, Bill Shaw came up with a payment system that was designed to do that very thing, which was be to redistribute uh, the resources to the primary care or the evaluation and management services and away from procedural. And that got gradually over the last, it's actually in the last 10, 15 years, we've discovered it's completely unraveled. It's completely not working that way at all. We're right back to where we were before RBRVS in terms of the distribution of resources. Um, uh, so yes, there is going to be a battle and I think specialists, people who are proceduralists and um, you know, not primary care, not evaluation and management are probably going to see some real challenges to their um, uh, a their aut autonomy and b their income over time. Um, I think it's being mitigated a bit by the tendency to go get a salary job. Like the cardiologists went in droves when we kind of cut off their opportunity to make money off certain procedures, which we won't. But, so I th I think it's happening already. Um, I think the trend toward becoming an employee rather than a, uh, an independent practitioner is starting to already get at some of these inequities in the, you know, specialists are saying, I'm, I'm, I realize I'm not going to make as much money if I, as what I could do in private practice, but I'm going to be an employee, I'm going to have a better life, and um, hopefully, you know, the whole, be part of a team. So I think there's, it's a 10 to 20 year transition. I, I, I guess the one other thing I have to say is if you look, I know people make all kinds of choices. There's all kinds of reasons people choose what, which, which specialty to go into. But it is curious that when you look at the fill rates of the different res, uh, residency um, specialties um, and you look at the expected income, it's pretty linear. <laughs> <laughs> and so back to your question, and I hate to say this about doctors, that they're motivated somewhat by their incomes, but they, they clearly are because they are, there's a very low fill rate for primary care and a very high fill rate for the higher uh, paying uh, right now. But if, I think as that starts to tilt with some of these payment changes, there will be a, an, an interest in the new, new pipeline and going into the more the primary care, and maybe that will mitigate some of the turf wars. Because there'll I, be fewer people out there wanting that. I would just add that I, I think that part of the issue that that makes it more complicated now is the amount of medical debt, uh, that, uh, educational debt Absolutely. that people are coming out with. And, and I, I think sometimes people are deciding against their preferences to work in one field or another based upon their how much they've got to mm -hmm. earn in order to pay off their debt. So I think grappling with that issue too yeah, is maybe part of the solution. So. Yep. Yep. so in the back. Our good friend, Dr. Miles Shore. Yeah. I'm Miles Shore, and for a fair amount of time, I ran an accountable care organization that was capitated in the Department of Mental Health that was called Mass Mental Health Center. 
And this is sort of in the line of a prediction that when the dust settles, my guess is that some of the best um, experiments, most successful experiments, will be groups that have been capitated. I know that capitation is a bad word for reasons that I think had nothing to do with the, the real essence of that uh, way of funding. But we were capitated because we had a defined population, a fixed budget that was determined on bases that had nothing whatsoever to do with the work that we were doing, either its quality or its quantity. Uh, and yet, because we had standards and a very talented group of people, uh, it was a very successful operation. And my guess is, and that's because the only people who really can solve the problem of quality and cost are the people who are doing the work, the, the professional staff. And the only way of enlisting them, I suspect, is going to be by, some, uh, by a very carefully thought out uh, system of capitation on a group basis to solve the various ethical problems. Part of the problem with many of the solutions that are being uh, proposed is that they come either from academia or from government, put together sincerely and often artfully by people who are not doing the work. And it's only enlisting that group of people, I suspect, that's going to solve these problems. So I know, Nancy, you appropriately said capitation in a whisper, because that's, not a, that's a bad word. But it's not a bad concept. And my, as I say, my prediction is that that's going to be the way things settle out. Since that's not a question, all I have to say is I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> This is a great panel. Barbara Rapson, I'm the Executive Director of the Mass Health Quality Partners. And it's a follow-up to that question, actually, because I see it in direct conflict with this issue of patient choice. Because um, I think the governor raised this issue of patient choice and people being able to go wherever they want. And the idea that um, that, that conflicts with the idea that in your, if you're in a network where everybody's talking to each other, all using the same standards, and um, have some kind of uh, sort of presumably infrastructure with shared electronic health records and, and health information. So in this culture we have, choice is king. You know, choice tops everything. And choice is really not good for you sometimes. So it's a real challenge, um, and it, there's some work that we're doing as part of a grant that Nancy mentioned with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for Aligning Forces for Quality in Greater Boston. The idea of trying to educate people about things that Right care, right time, right place. And so it's not necessarily going wherever you want to go or having the freedom to go won't necessarily get you better health care. And in some cases, it can get you a lot worse health care. But there's this intrinsic challenge of how do you educate people to begin to appreciate that? Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear from Rembrandt Hamilton and, and others about their ideas. So it was, it was lack of choice, perhaps more than anything, that led to the managed care backlash of the mid-1990s. How do we avoid it happening all over again? Well, I, I don't know, is that, uh, my, my, my sense of your question is, how do we go about the process of, in, of educating consumers so that it's not just a question of choice, but it's informed choice, right? 
And so, I mean, and we're engaged in that and we intend to get deeper engaged in that uh, inside of our own congregations uh, and inside of the communities that we represent to begin to do work to help people to understand uh, that the transparency question that the governor raised, that's part of it. Uh, we've got to know what, what's being paid for. We've got to have a sense of what is the data telling us about the various treatment. If I go into my doctor, my knee is messed up, and I want the doctor to give me an MRI, and the doctor says, no, I can, that, that's, I can treat this without doing an MRI. How do I know, how, do, how does GBIO and others help the patient to know that's a cost-efficient way and proceed down that track? Or stay in my community and go get my hip surgery as opposed to going to Mass General. No, uh, not trying to fight with Mass General. But the point being, we have the responsibility of helping to bring about informed choices and to support those changes in policy uh, that promotes that. So if it means a higher copay, uh, for example, uh, for me choosing to go to a more expensive service, then perhaps we ought to support that as well. So we are running out of time, and I want to invite our three panelists to give any final thoughts that you were burning and just so passionate to get out that nobody asked. And so we'll start again with Reverend Hamilton. Well, you know, I, I would just, I, I like uh, what the governor said earlier about, and I've heard him say this twice now, about not permitting the complexity of this uh, challenge around cost containment to lock us out. Uh, and I think that GBIO and uh, Healthcare for All, who's our policy partner in the work that we're doing, uh, has decided that in fact, we just gotta, we gotta jump in here. We've gotta figure out how to learn this, how to drive it. At the end of the day, it's our money that everybody's talking about and debating. The last thing that I'd say is, is that I think that we have to keep the pressure on government. Not that government can solve all this. No, we all have a role. But I think if the governor's statistic is correct, that 45% of state government dollars currently, uh, when you add up all of the different uh, uh, health uh, initiatives, is being spent somewhere around public health then it, it might argue for that state government, when it starts thinking about public education, when it starts thinking about uh, uh, economic development, when it starts thinking about attracting businesses in a certain community, that it's, it's looking through a lens of overall public health, so that public health strategies are worked through uh, in those different sectors. So I just say to us, let's keep, let's keep pounding away at it until we get to the world as it ought to be. Professor Kennedy, final thoughts. Well, um, I think I've already had more airtime than is my due, but I, I, I do think the, the, the thought that it's, it's not you or you, it's, it's all of us, and we're in it together, and we have, to, we have to work together is the right way to think about this. I mean, I might pick on one group over another, but I still have, we still have to work on this all together, and I think finding any one place to blame you know, whether it be government or Mass General or, you know, the primary care docs or the non-primary, you know, it doesn't solve the problem and, and it just creates an, an, uh, a much more antagonistic political climate. And I think, um, you know, even though our Congress doesn't seem to know how to do compromise and, and talk about, you know, where, how do we find the common ground, I think that's, in Massachusetts we really had, we did find the common ground for round one and we can find the common ground for round two, but we just have to be 
uh, we have to include as many parties as we possibly can. Commissioner I, I, I would um, say that we're in a really fortunate uh, place uh, historically. I mean, we, we, we've shown that we can do health care reform uh, 1.0 in Massachusetts against all the doubters. And I think we really have the opportunity now. And I think that, that it's, it's um, I, I would, I appreciate very much what the governor was saying that we, this is, cannot be a long process. It has to be a process where we, we decide this is the year to do it. The solutions, there won't be any additional solutions two years later. We should do it now. And, and I think he is very generously saying he put out his proposal for consideration, but he wants to see other ideas and suggestions and wants to see what the legislature and community partners have to say. So I think it's a time when we all should focus some attention on this and, and uh, make sure we're contributing to its success. So. In conclusion, I want to thank Governor Patrick for coming here today and sharing his time and his thoughts with us. I want to thank our terrific panelists. I want to thank all of you who joined us here today and all of you out there in cyberland, including Melissa from Liverpool. <laughs> and I also want to take a moment to thank the fantastic team that worked so hard to put this event together, did such a, a flawless job in terms of how well this went. So thank you all, and uh, I look forward to this. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.